Welcome back to Series 3 of Mud Between Your Toes, Conversations with Pete Wood. In this series, I'm interviewing people from around the world, from all walks of life, and all with stories to share. So sit back and enjoy. Hello, the King's Cross Steelers are a British rugby team based in London. Founded in 1995, it was the world's first gay inclusive rugby union club. Its founding sparked the beginning of a much larger gay rugby movement, which to date includes over 70 clubs across the world. And now a moving new documentary film, Steelers, the world's first gay rugby club, premieres online at the Glasgow Film Festival in 2021. Zimbabwean-born Tim Sullivan is their president, and he's here today to chat to me about the club and the impact it's had on rugby and sport in general. So Tim Sullivan, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. Thank you. Good to be here. Tim, before we kick off, if you'll excuse the pun, I want to talk about the day I first met you back in the 1980s. You were an accomplished fashion designer in Harare and had just designed and made my sister-in-law Hillary's wedding dress, a huge ruffled, ruched Victorian affair, very much in line with dresses of the early 1980s, a la Lady Diana. You were devilishly good looking. Now, during the reception, I went to the urinal. Suddenly my brother was standing right next to me at the urinal, but not pissing. As all men know, there's an unwritten rule that if one person is already at the urinal, you automatically take the space furthest away. You never ever stand right next to the other person peeing, even if it is your brother. So I was alarmed and looked across at Duncan and asked him, what was he up to? Oh, he said a bit flustered and embarrassed. Brew, I felt I needed to warn you that Hillary's dress designer, Tim, is gay. Well, he didn't use the word gay. He said morph, which is slang for gay in Southern Africa. Of course, Duncan didn't know that I was gay back then, and I just roared with laughter. For God's sake, Duncan, it's your bloody wedding day. I'm sure I can look after myself. Such was the world we grew up in. If memory serves me right, you never made a pass at me, more's the pity. Anyway, long story short, but my first question is, how did a Zimbabwean fashion designer end up in London as president of the world's first professional gay rugby club? I came to London in 86 on a holiday, on, on route to Canada to attend a friend's wedding. Um, and the, the prospective bride fell ill, the wedding was called off, and I was in London, and I was looking, I was just looking around, and I went into an, an employment agency and got a job as an accountant. Um, I loved London from the moment I landed here, so I stayed. I went back to Zimbabwe, sold up what I had, and moved back here, and have been here ever since, but never done another, I did fashion designing, I did, I, I ran a small collection in the late 90s here, but accountancy has been where I've spent my time. And then I joined the the Steelers in 2001 and the rest is history. And then you became president. Well, we'll get to the documentary later, which is very exciting, but tell us about the history of the club. How did it all begin? It began with six men wanting to form a group that could go and watch rugby. They wanted to, 
to feel safe in a group going to watch rugby. But they found that there were more than six of them and they met in a bar in, in central London um, at King's Cross and decided to form a little rugby club where they could play rugby and they would play on Sundays in the parks and things like that. And there was, there was an, an impetus to make this something more formal. And so a club was formed. And the reason we're called the King's Cross Steelers is because we were formed in Central Bar in King's Cross. And we carry as our logo, the elephant in a castle, which is the logo of the Earl of Camden, which is where King's Cross is. I mean, when you first began, was it taken seriously or did other clubs see you guys as just a bunch of poofters prancing around the field? I must admit that when we first began, yes, there was a lot of, a lot of reservation, I suppose would be the word. Uh, a number of clubs wouldn't play us. And you must remember that this is the late nineties. AIDS was still a very big thing. People were scared of blood, particularly of gay blood and they didn't want to play us. But our biggest ally was the RFU. They supported us from the very outset and encouraged us, helped us find a home. And we've club shared with a club in East London for the last 20 years, more, more than 20 years actually now. Um, and it's worked really well. But yeah, at the time it was very, very difficult to find teams that would play us. I mean, it's been a great success. They say that the King's Cross Steelers spawned an entire generation of gay rugby clubs across the globe. The last time I checked, there are more than 75 gay rugby clubs globally, probably more. Some are in places that surprise you, Tokyo, Osaka, Tel Aviv, but most surprisingly, the USA has the greatest number of clubs, even though it's not even a, a rugby nation. I'll tell you why that is. In America, American football is the thing, and it's, it's highly sponsored. It's, it's a, a very expensive sport. So it's, it's supported through schools and colleges. And then, of course, you've got the, the big leagues playing over there. But men that leave school and college that want a sport that they can continue playing, rugby offers them that outlet because it's not an expensive sport. You need a space, some posts, protectors, you know, and that's it. And that's why it has become such a phenomenon in, in America. And, you know, we've had a couple of the Bingham Cups, which is the International Gay Tournament in America, and they've all been hugely successful. I think what pleases me when I read up about the USA clubs is the reception they were given from the straight teams, even those from rural Tennessee and Alabama. I'll quote what one gay player has to say. We talk a lot about brotherhood on the pitch. We've always been embraced by our brothers, no matter what their views are off the field. So I guess my question is to you, why is the world's roughest sport also the most gay friendly as opposed to football? How come rugby is quite liberal about LGBTQ people? I'll, I'll tell you exactly why. It's because the rugby community has as its, one of its ethos, that you are a brotherhood. You can hate each other on that pitch, but you cross that white line and you leave that animosity, that anger, that aggression on the field. And you go into the bar and you drink with your mates. They, they become mates. And I have seen that countless times across. I mean, I watch rugby every Saturday. I go, I go with the Steelers every Saturday somewhere to watch rugby. 
I've traveled with the Steelers to all our tournaments except one. And I have seen that, that brotherhood, that fraternity of being opponents on a field and being colleagues and friends inside the clubhouse afterwards. And that's it, because it comes from the top. And that's where football needs to have some leadership. The leadership of the football associations around the world needs to confront this issue of gay participation in sport. And not just gay, they've got a problem with racism and all sorts of things in football that they could sort out if there was the leadership at the top. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, Nigel Owens, the Rugby World Cup ref, um, yeah. he reckons that, and very pretty much what you've just said, rugby is a full contact sport without much protection. It's got everything, brutal tackling, dirt and mud, but also plenty of parties. And he has the interesting thing, those post-game festivities include both teams. The visiting team doesn't just jump on a bus and head home. Players sing bawdy rugby songs, but with plenty of mutual admiration, winners and losers gather together showing respect on both sides. That respect for opponents, for everyone in the rugby world, really is one reason that the sport is so gay-friendly. It's true. And, uh, you know, I, will, I could recount evenings spent with opponent teams where they said to us, that was the best night out we've ever had with another rugby club. There are clubs that come to play us at home that say to us in the weeks before the game, what are we doing afterwards? They want to go into London and party with us afterwards. That is what rugby is all about. It's the, it's the brutality on the field and the camaraderie off the field. That's what makes rugby so such a special sport. And I'll yeah. tell you a little secret about Nigel Owen. He uh -huh. was guest speaker at one of our dinners one year. Um, and what an amazing speaker. I mean, he had us eating out of the palm of his hand and in hysterics. We took him out afterwards and we got him so blatteringly drunk. I mean, he, I don't think he's ever been that drunk. He had such a good night with us that night. And, you know, that's what other teams have said to us. You're such good fun when you're out. You, you know, you mentioned that it starts at the top. Um, you know, we, we're talking about Nigel Owens. I mean, he is at the pinnacle of refereeing. Um, Gareth Thomas, the Wales legend, one of the greatest rugby players in the history of UK, skippering the Welsh international side, as well as the British and Irish Lions during his career. Twi Twickenham star Craig Maxwell Keys, England Sevens international Sam Stanley, who I think became the first English professional rugby union player to publicly come out as gay in, in 2015. And away from UK, there's um, the Australian Ian Roberts, the very first high profile rugby player to ever come out to the public as gay. I mean, the list goes on. It, it's very different to football. Totally, totally. And you know, people like Sam and, and Gareth and Nigel are personal friends of mine as well. And they know the impact that their coming out has had to people. You know, if you're a young, young man playing rugby and you're feeling ostracized or isolated in sport in the change room because you're gay, having a, a role model like that out there is hugely empowering. I mean, unbelievably empowering. And let's not forget, not just gay players, but our straight allies. You know, James Haskell, Chris Robshaw here, 
they both march with us at Pride and they are as much fun as anybody else on that Pride parade. We've got people like David Pocock in Australia, ex-Zimbabwean. That man said that he wouldn't get married until Australians had the right to marry the person that they love. These are people that we mustn't underestimate the support that they give the, the gay and international inclusive rugby movement with their, with their activities, their words, their actions. That's what's important. Yeah, I mean, of course, there are the big bigots and homophobes. There are in every sport and every uh, part of life. Um, work remains to be done. There are still pictures where anti-gay slurs are used. Some rugged players still resent gay athletes. Um, I guess that's why the official statements from governing bodies um, and the educational efforts that follow are so important. Yeah. And, you know, homophobia, I don't know that we'll ever totally eradicate it. But the one thing I've always said to our guys at the club, every time we play a team, we fight that homophobia. If we can show just one player on that opposing team that we are a bunch of guys who want to play rugby, that we're just a great bunch of guys, on Monday morning when he's standing at the water cooler and somebody cracks a gay joke or uses a gay slur or something like that, in his mind, that bloke will think, I was out on Saturday night with the, with the Steelers and they were a nice bunch of guys and they played good rugby. He will be a little less keen to participate in that sort of behavior, that sort of banter that goes on in places. I've challenged people. I had a bloke that I worked with, a really lovely bloke, and he was he was high up in a rugby club in Kent. And one day, the, the day was a grey day, and he said, oh, what a gay day. And I said, this is not a gay day. Gay days are bright, happy days. This is a straight day. And I said, why do you use that slur? And he said, oh, my kid uses it. I said, well, I want you to go home and tell your little boy that that's not acceptable. And he took that and he said, you know, Tim, you're quite right. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be offensive. You need to challenge it and you need to show that, you know, our sexuality is important to us, but it shouldn't just define us. We are so much more than just our sexuality. Tell us about Mark Kendall Bingham. He sounded quite the hero and in many ways has become kind of the torchbearer for IGR. Oh, totally. I mean, Mark, I met Mark in San Francisco. Um, and he was a member of the San Francisco Fog. And he was charismatic. He was, he was tall, he was very good looking. And yeah, he was, he was a big figure in, 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 the, in, in their team. Um, he was on a plane out of Boston in um, 2001. And he was in communications with his mother on the ground by phone when the planes crashed into the Twin Towers. And he realized something was up on the plane he was on. And he spoke to his mum. Now, his mum had been a stewardess and she said to him, you need to do something. And he got together a group of guys and they stormed the cockpit. And it is believed that it was their actions that saved that plane from crashing into the Capitol building, 
if that plane had been rerouted to go back to the capital and crash into the capital, bearing in mind that you'd had two into the Twin Towers and one into the Pentagon. They were looking now for a spectacular end to the day with the capital. And they brought that plane down in a field in Pennsylvania. And after that, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little emotional about this, but after that, the, the, the rugby clubs that were in existence at that time, the Fog, the Steelers, um, Washington Renegades, we got together and decided that we needed to mark Mark's life. And we played a little rugby tournament between ourselves. And that grew. And it's, it's been the impetus that has made the international gay rugby community so large. There are a lot of clubs that don't play in leagues like we do every weekend that come together to play rugby socially in a park, groups together. But their one big aim every two years is to go to the Bingham Cup. That's what they, that's what they exist for. And that, that's important for rugby. It might be in a small community in rural America. It might be, you know, some small group somewhere that just want to play rugby and come to the tournament. And those tournaments are unbelievable, Peter. I, you know, come to one if you ever get a chance because you see a thousand men playing rugby. It's the largest organized rugby event in the world outside the sevens. And you see men playing rugby at all levels of, of ability from, like I say, Sunday players in a park right through to teams that play league rugby, um, coming together and enjoying the brotherhood of rugby together. And we always do it with Mark in mind. And the, the tournament is known as the Bingham Cup. And his mum, bless her soul, she, she passed away this year. Um, she, she was our mother. She came to every one of those tournaments. She had time for everybody because people would come up to her and hug her and say how important she was and how important Mark was. She never balked from that, that role. And we've lost, we've lost our mother this year. IGR has lost a very, very important person in Mark's month. Mm. Um, Tim, talking of torchbearers, um, is it true you were an Olympic torchbearer? I was, yes. God, you have done your homework. Yes, I was. Um, the, the rugby club nominated me when London had the Olympics. There was a, um, a website where you could go on and, and nominate people who'd done things for their community. And I got a letter one day via email in the office. I was in the office and I opened this email. And it was from the organizing committee of the Olympics saying that, you know, we'd like you to be a torchbearer. But in order to accept the, the nomination, I had to read what had been said about me to see that I was happy with what was said. And I was moved beyond tears by what the club had said um, in their little diatribe about what, you know, why I should have this, this honor. And um, my boss came into the, to the room and he looked at me and he said, what's happened? And I said, I've just got this email. And he leant over my shoulder and he read it and he went, well, that's bloody well deserved. Good for you. It was an amazing experience, I tell you. London was the center of the universe that year. And I ran a, a, a short hop through Havering on its way up to the Olympic Stadium in the week before the Olympics. And I, I, I still go goosebumpy thinking about it. It was just amazing. 
absolutely incredible. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I mean, look, incredibly exciting. Tell us about the documentary Steelers. It's won countless awards. The trailer is very moving, beautifully shot. What I loved was the dichotomy of a guy running on the rugby field and then cutting to the same guy dressed in drag and singing on the stage later that night. In fact, there's a, a beautiful line in the documentary that says, this isn't a coming out story, a story about winning a tournament or even about being gay. It's a story about searching for where you belong and never giving up because you might just find happiness where you least expect. With that in mind, tell us about the importance of these players and clubs such as the Steelers as far as diversity, inclusion, and their influence in overcoming stereotypes and other challenges facing homosexual athletes, not just rugby players. I think the thing that makes the Steelers and other rugby clubs, and particularly other inclusive rugby clubs, is the fact that we are a group of diverse people. We don't, we don't come from the same race, religion, class. Um, and the Steelers is a microcosm of London. It has, I, I remember at one stage working out, I was listening to a group of guys and I said to them, how many languages do we speak in this group here? And it was a group of 12 of us. And between us, we spoke 28 languages. Some of them, with English as their third language. But of course, people come to London for the experience of work, living in a big city, all that sort of stuff. And it's a very diverse community. Now, when Eamon first thought about doing this document, Eamon had been doing little clips and um, doing photographs at sidelines and things like that when he wasn't actually playing. But he decided that he would do this, talk, this documentary as we were preparing to go to Amsterdam. He got a concussion couple of weeks before we were due to go so he wasn't going to be able to play but he paid for his ticket and he paid for his accommodation and all that sort of stuff and he wanted to go and his his boyfriend at the time wanted to wanted him to come as well so he said look I'll take my camera and we'll just do some sh some shots but he got it in his head to talk to people and he did a couple of online you know chat sessions with people and three came through this process that he thought had stories that he could tell. And they show the diversity of the, of the club. The first one is Nick. She was our, our head of director of rugby at the time, a woman, an international, she played for Wales, a, an incredible woman. I mean, I can't praise Nick enough. She's one of my favorite women in the whole world. Um, her story was about being a, a rugby player, in a man's world out at the Steelers and dealing with that. And also being a woman in the rugby fraternity where people could dismiss her because she was a woman. And that used to really infuriate her. And I'll give you a quick example. We were playing rugby at one tournament. She was there with her, with her girlfriend at the time, both of them international players. And Shelley said something about a decision that had been taken on the field and some bloke on the opposition side took her to task but he didn't take her to task about what she'd said it became a misogynistic attack on her you know you're a woman what would you know and i could see shelly wanted to have a fight and she was going she was going to go for this but but i stepped in and i said look 
step away. You're wrong. She's right. How can she be right? I said, have you ever played international rugby? And he said, no, has she? I said, yes, she has. Step away. They did. I reported that to his chairman that evening in the bar. I said, you know, this is unacceptable. But Nick, this was the sort of thing that Nick's been got involved with all the time, having to define herself where, you know, she shouldn't need to. She was a, a, an expert. Another person in the, the, in the film was Simon, and he told his story about how low he had become. Depression had become such, had, had eaten into his whole existence that he got to the stage where he couldn't even leave his flat. He was that low. He was living in squalor. And if you see Simon, you just can't imagine this. He is confident, happy, good-looking, successful, but his sexuality had driven him to this low point until he came to the Steelers. One day, he, someone encouraged him to get out and do something. He went, came to the Steelers and found a place where he could be safe and he could explore his sexuality and play his rugby that he absolutely loved. So he tells his story. And the third one is, as you mentioned, Drew. Drew is an American, played top flight sports and athlete. You know, it was an athlete in America, the college system, came to London, had played rugby in America, came to the Steelers. And from the day Drew came to the club, Drew was a force of nature. I mean, in everything Drew does, this man is a force of nature. On the field, you do not want to be tackled by that five foot little man because he will take you down. And the biggest man on the field knows that. But Drew has another side to him. He loves drag and he's Drewlicious. And he has formed a little group of guys that performed at the Manchester um, Bingham Cup and became so successful that the Steelers have an annual event of fundraiser where we take over the Heaven Nightclub in London and fill the place. And we put on a variety show of which Drew is usually one of the principal performers, shall we say. And it's everything, singing, dancing, drag, the whole lot. But that is our biggest single fundraiser for the club. That's how successful it is. Now, Drew, he loves his drag. And that's part of it. And I'm so pleased that that's included in this film because whilst it shows how important a rugby club is to be diverse and to have accepting of other people, it's nice that people see that you can be a rugby player and you can be a drag queen if you wish. It's an incredible piece of film, film work as a documentary, and I love documentaries. It is a masterpiece and it deserves every accolade it gets. Eamon is an amazing filmmaker. Um, and this film has done great things, not just for the Steelers. Of course it has, it's been, it's been very successful for us, but for rugby and for gay rugby and inclusive rugby, it ticks all the boxes. Um, well, I love the, the trailer, and if anyone is keen to see the trailer, just type in Steelers the Movie on YouTube. That's all one word, Steelers the Movie, um, and you can see the trailer. But when can we actually watch the full documentary? We're waiting. We're waiting. I, I, had, I was in communication with Eamon this weekend to see if we've got any dates yet. Um, he's negotiating with various bodies to, to get it out. It was supposed to open the London Film Festival this time last year. And we went into lockdown the day before his film was due to be shown. Um, so he had a special showing for the Steelers 
and I sat here in tears. I mean, just moved beyond belief by how moving this film is. It is amazing. It, it's, it's, it's different for me because I know the characters and I, I know the experience and I know Amsterdam and the tournament that was doing that. But to see the human stories, I, there's no one on the face of this earth who wouldn't be moved by watching that film. It is just amazing, absolutely amazing. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Now, COVID aside, um, will we be seeing you at the Gay Games uh, here in Hong Kong next year? We certainly hope so. Um, they've, got, they've got Rugby Sevens. I don't think they've, they've got... got the sevens, uh, yes. Yeah, they haven't got Rugby Union, have they? We've Do got... You, you guys um, have a Rugby Sevens team. We, we play Sevens. We will be playing Sevens because we come out of um, our tight lockdown in the next couple of weeks. And by the 31st of March, we can go back to playing some sort of competitive rugby. So what we will be doing, because we haven't had a season, is we'll be playing in a couple of sevens tournaments to get the boys back ready for rugby. Um, we were supposed to have gone to Ottawa last year for the, for the Bingham Cup, and that had to be postponed. It's going to be in Ottawa next year. So we'll have to do a lot of fundraising to do Ottawa and Hong Kong. But if there's one thing the Steelers love, it's travel. And... Going on tour is huge. I mean, I remember going on tour where you took one team and the first really big tournament was when I was chairman. We took a hundred players to Sydney and that was just, uh, I know now what Wellington must have felt like moving troops because I described the Steelers on tour as herding cats. Um, <laughs> to get a hundred guys out to Sydney was just unbelievable, but we had an incredible tournament. So yes, the Steelers love travel and we will be looking to the, the gay games to put a couple, at least a team into that tournament. So uh, let them know we're coming. Absolutely awesome. Listen, Tim Sullivan, we're out of time. It's been an absolute pleasure to catch up with you again. Thank you for joining me on Conversations with Pete Wood. That's a pleasure, Peter. Lovely to speak to you again. Have a good day. Take care. Bye. I've just been chatting to Tim Sullivan, president of the King's Cross Steelers Rugby Club. And next week, I'll be continuing with the LGBTQ sports by interviewing the two co-founders of the Gay Games 2022, which will be held here in Hong Kong next year. Well, that's all for now, but if you enjoyed listening to that podcast, you might also find my book, Mud Between Your Toes, Faintly Amusing. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can find both series one and two of my podcasts on a plethora of platforms, from direct links on my Mud Between Your Toes Facebook page to apps such as Podbean, Apple Music, iTunes Store, Spotify Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn Radio, and Google Podcasts. So don't miss out on my next episode. Goodbye. <laughs>